When you say that you love someone or love something, I wonder, what do you usually mean? When I say I love something or love someone, usually I mean I find something attractive or enjoyable in one way or another. Because I usually use it. Love is just another word for affirmation, for celebration, something good. People ask me about living in Nashville sometimes. I always tell them I love it. I love it here. This is my home. I didn't grow up here, but I've been here 20 years. So, you know, in a lot of ways, I have grown up here. And I have no intention of leaving. I don't know what the Lord's plans are for my life, but I'm hoping they're to keep me here till my dying day. I love so much about our city. I love its parks. I love its libraries. I love its wonderful restaurants. I love the music that's everywhere. I love the fall and the spring weather. I love it, which is to say, I recognize and I enjoy Nashville's many qualities. That's what I mean when I say I love it. Is that how you use love? I bet it is. Whether it's a person you've fallen in love with or a favorite sweater you can't wait to pull off the shelf. When we talk about love, we usually mean we're drawn to something. We are affirming of something. And when that's what we mean by love, the opposite of love would be disapproval, wouldn't it? Try a new recipe. Ever tried a new recipe? And then like in the middle of the meal, you realize I'm not, this is not very good. <laughs> what do you say? I don't love that. I don't love that meal. I don't think I'll try that one again. When you're trying a new shirt, you're thinking about buying it, you look in the mirror and you realize it doesn't look great. I don't love that outfit. The way we often use the word love, disapproval or judgment just can't fit with it. It's its opposite. And because that's the way we normally use love, passages like the one we're going to look at this morning are often difficult to deal with, especially even for Christians. In the Bible, the ultimate standard for love is God. The Bible says as clearly as possible, God is love. And God's love is far deeper and far more complex than, than the kind of love I've been talking about. It's way more than affirming what's good in his people. God's love always involves him seeking good for his people. Not just affirming good that he sees in them, but seeking good for them. It's precisely because God is loving that the Bible says God disciplines those he loves. That's Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 describes God like a father who disciplines his children who are beloved to him. He disciplines us, Hebrews 12 says, for our good that we may share his holiness. That's how God loves us. And the Bible is also really clear that God's love for us is our model for our love for each other. The way we love each other in the church is built on how God has loved us as our Father. Now, why am I going on about love? I'm going on about love this morning because the, the, the chapter we're going to look at, Paul tells the church in Corinth to do something that on the surface seems to us like the very opposite of what a church ought to be about. 
In, in this chapter, he tells this church in Corinth to remove somebody from the church, someone who was part of the church. He tells them, take them and put them out of the church because of their sin. What's that about? How could that be right in a community that's founded on the grace of God towards sinners and on God's love that sent his only son to die so that sinners could be rescued? How can a church that loves like God put someone out because of sin? That's what Paul explains in our passage this morning. That's what we're going to do our best to understand by looking carefully at what he said. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, let me say, first of all, we're so glad you're here. We are so glad you're here. Uh, we, are, we, we always hope to, to welcome friends and neighbors like you who are exploring Jesus and what it means to follow him. Uh, and, and let me tell you that in a way, you're catching us on, a, on an unusual Sunday. I mean, the, the subject of this chapter... It's not something we talk about all the time. It's not some sort of hobby horse that we beat all the time. I mean, if, if it were, it'd be a really unhealthy hobby horse to be beating. I mean, it wouldn't be any more healthy than a, than a family medicine doc who's always talking about amputating body parts. If that's what they love most, they're probably in the wrong line of work. They're, they should be looking for help and preventive care and all the rest. In a way, what we're going to talk about today is, is unusual from our normal topics of conversation. But but one of our fundamental beliefs as Christians, one of the fundamental things that we do when we gather each week is listen to God. Our own, our, we believe he's spoken to us. The God who made us, we believe, has spoken in, in this book in words that he wants us to have and has protected for us over all the thousands of years of its existence so that we could learn what he wants us to know. And one of the ways that that we affirm our faith that he's spoken to us and that everything he says is good for us. One of the ways we affirm that is just by taking what he has said in order and looking at all of it, not just the bits that we like best, not just the parts that sound the best to us or that fit what we already expect him to say, but even especially sometimes those parts that don't necessarily jive with what we expect. Those are the ones where we really want to hunker down and see if this is from him, it must be good. What does he mean? Why is it good? How can we obey him even if it feels countercultural to us to do so? So in a way, you are hearing, you are experiencing something fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is one who wants to listen to what God has said and then obey it. And along the way, as we talk about this unusual subject, this difficult subject this morning, what you'll see is a bit of the heart of what a church is for and, and, what, and how coming to trust in the grace of Christ towards sinners ends up shaping every part of our life, including our posture towards sin. That's what we hope you'll see as we walk through this chapter. I want to begin by reading the chapter we're going to consider this morning. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in chapter 5, verse 1 and read through verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes... It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For... Though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. 
When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you, you need to go out of the world. But I'm not writing to you not to associate with... But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is God's word. You can be seated. I see three things that we need to understand about this chapter if we're to understand what Paul wants us to get from it. Three things to understand about what he's calling for. First, the jarring command. The jarring command. At the end of chapter four, what we looked at last week, Paul began to call out some arrogant leaders. That's how he described them. He saw these leaders as dangerous in where they were trying to guide the church. And he warned them that he was coming back for another visit. And that when he came back, if this is how they carried on, it wouldn't be good for them. <laughs> what could be so serious that Paul would issue a warning like that at the end of chapter four? Well, chapter five, verse one answers the question. It is actually reported, he says, that there's sexual immorality among you. Let me show you what was going on here and then what Paul says should be done about it. What was going on and what should be done about it. Here's what was going on. A man in the church was living openly in sexual sin. He was very clearly disobeying the commands of scriptures about God's design for sex. And he was living in a way that even pagan Corinth wouldn't tolerate. That's saying something. Because pagan Corinth did not have a lot of taboos when it came to sexual practices. Paul simply says that this man has his father's wife. It doesn't mean that he was sleeping with his biological mother. There was a different word he would have used if that's what was going on. But it would be still considered a form of incest, both according to the law in Leviticus and according to expectations in Roman society and in Corinth at the time. And beyond the fact that it was this very scandalous type of sexual sin, in God's word, any sexual relationship outside of marriage between a man and a woman is outside God's design for it and it's sin against him. That's just real clear all through the Bible. And based on, based on what Paul says here, 
We can assume this guy knew it was forbidden, what he was doing wasn't okay, and he chose to do it anyway. And we can, based on the tense of the verb Paul is using here, we can, we can, we can see that, that this guy was actively in an ongoing way choosing this sexual relationship with his stepmother. It wasn't that, that he didn't know better. It's not that he, that he sort of slipped back into old habits, made a mistake and regretted it. It's that this person wanted this way of life, choosing it over what Jesus says is good and pleasing to him. That's what was going on. That part's really clear. What Paul says should be done about it, that's really clear too. Paul's response couldn't be more straightforward. He cannot believe their arrogance. He can't believe that they're not heartbroken over the way this man is living. He can't believe they're carrying on as if it's no big deal. So instead, he says, verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. That's what should be done about it. That's the crystal clear command. As jarring as it might be, it's not confusing. He he basically repeats this command several times throughout this text. It comes out in verse 5. It comes out in another way in verse 7. It comes out in verse 11 and in verse 13. All different angles on the same basic command that this person choosing this lifestyle should be removed from the church. Let me me just show you a couple of these examples. So look at verse 5. In verse 5, he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan. I know that's a really strange and unexpected way to put it. But I think what Paul means there is pretty clear. In one of his letters, another one of his letters in Colossians, when he's looking at what God has done to save sinners and to to rescue them, he talks about it as a deliverance from one kingdom into another. Colossians 1, 13, Paul says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. To be in a church is to be part of a kingdom and not part of the kingdom you were once a part of. A new kingdom, one defined by new rules, by a new king. So when he says deliver this man to Satan, that's what Paul's got in mind. Inside the church, here's one kingdom. It represents a kingdom that's coming that will one day spread over all the earth, but for now shows up only here, only in these relationships, only in this context. Outside the church for now, another kingdom exists, one ruled by Satan and the powers of evil. Paul is saying when he says deliver this man to Satan, put them out of the church. In other words, say what's really true. His allegiance is to that world. His heart is with with that kingdom. He doesn't want this kingdom in here. Deliver the man to Satan just is another way of saying, remove the man from the church. And then verses 9 to 13, this last paragraph, Paul Paul makes the same statement essentially with slightly different words a couple more times. In that paragraph, he's he's trying to clean up something that had been misunderstood in in a former letter that he wrote to them. Somehow, he must have been writing to them about how to relate to ongoing sin in the church and how important it was to, to, to take that sin out of the church. And they had misunderstood him. They thought that meant we shouldn't ever be around anyone who disobeys Jesus. Like faithful Christian living means complete isolation from all sin. And Paul's writing in that last paragraph saying, no, 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 that's not impossible. That's not, what I, that's not possible for you. That's not what I was trying to say. I, I don't, I'm not talking about the world. 
If you were to try to disassociate from everybody who's guilty of sexual sin or greed or swindling, you'd have to come out of the world altogether. I don't want you out of the world. You've been sent by Jesus into the world with a message of peace and hope for anyone who will have it. I'm not saying don't hang out with sinful people. Jesus ate dinner with sinful people. He was famous for it, got him killed. That's not what I'm talking about. What is he talking about? Verse 11 clarifies what he does mean. He says, I'm talking about, I don't want you to associate with someone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. These are patterns of sin that are entrenched and deep and willful and chosen. If somebody claims to be with Jesus and chooses disobedience to him, then I don't want you to even eat with someone like that, he says. I think that line is actually really helpful for clarifying what he means. You know, in the ancient world, eating with someone had even, even stronger connotations than it does now. Connotations of welcome and, and affirmation and endorsement. Uh, to eat with somebody was a sign that everything was good. Again, back to Jesus. He ate with, with notorious sinners because he wanted to, to, to free them from their sin. And the self-righteous Pharisees saw him eating with those sinners. And that's one of the main reasons they wanted him dead. Because it, they mistook what he was doing in that context. Well, here Paul is saying, look, if you carry on with somebody claiming to be Christian who's living as if sin against God is no big deal, then you're communicating that you don't think sin against God is a big deal. You're communicating business as usual, nothing to see here. I mean, Paul doesn't expect people who don't follow Jesus to follow Jesus. Why would they? Why would they obey him if they didn't trust him yet? As he puts it, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? That's not my job. That's God's job. He'll take care of that. But Paul implies, more than implies, Paul states that it is his job and it is the local church's job to judge those who do bear the name of brother. In other words, those who claim to be Christian but don't embrace what Christ calls us to. In that case, Paul commands them to remove the sinner from their church, to, to treat him as if he's not part of the Christian community. That's the jarring command. I wonder how it strikes you. How does that command land on you? If you're struggling with it, it wouldn't surprise me. Because there's, there, there are such clear passages, so much more familiar than this one, that seem to, to, to work in a different direction. I mean, in Matthew 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one of his most famous things that he ever said, one of our favorite verses to quote is, don't judge, lest you be judged. That's the one where Jesus says, who do you think you are trying to pick a speck out of your brother's eye when you got a log sticking it out of your, out of your own eye? Or maybe just in, in 1 Corinthians alone, we're building towards this epic chapter, one of the most beautiful sections of all of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, all about love. And there Paul describes love as patient and kind, love as, as something that keeps no record of wrongs. Love, love bears all things. Love hopes all things. Love believes all things. How could love take a sinner and put them out. I 
This is a distinction we've got to make sure we are clear on. Friends, the church is meant to be a hospital, a place where everybody in it is in need of care and everybody in it is a caregiver. We're all patients, we're all doctors. And the church is a a community of people who are all on the way. None of us have arrived. The distinction between having a place in the church and not having a place in the church is not a distinction between those who have sin in their life and those who don't. That's crystal clear throughout the text of Scripture. But there is a distinction between those who have a place in the church and those who don't. That distinction is between those who see sin as a problem and those who don't. Those who see sin as a problem that they want help with, as an enemy, they want to fight. And those who see it as no big deal. The same love that bears with those who stumble and want help the same love that, ha- that hopes all things for growth. The same love that, that takes a struggling sinner and keeps no record of wrongs. That same love confronts those who sin and call it fine. The jarring command is remove this person from your church. The unexpected motivation is the next thing to notice. Paul tells them to, to, to take this person out of their church because of love. Because of love. That's the motivation behind everything he tells them to do. It's as clear as the command itself. And I want to show it to you. There are three examples in how Paul reasons with this church that show it is love behind this clear command that he's given them. Three objects of love that drive him to give them this command. Look with me. Number one. Put this person out of your church because you love this sinner. Look at verse 5. There's the first reason that Paul gives for why, he, for, for why they should do this thing he's telling them to do. Deliver this man to Satan, he says. Why? For the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Deliver this man to Satan, as we've already said, just means Take him out of the church, the kingdom of light, and put him back into the kingdom of darkness where his heart seems allied. Do this for the destruction of his flesh and so his spirit may be saved. What does that mean? When Paul says the destruction of his flesh, he's not talking about his physical body being killed. For Paul, flesh doesn't mean like this material body we live in. It means it has to do with the sinful nature with an orientation in us towards what God is opposed and away from what God loves. That's what flesh means for Paul. And Paul wants that old self, that self-centered self, killed. He wants it destroyed. And he wants it destroyed because on the day that's to come, the day of judgment that he's already talked about several times in this letter, he wants this guy's spirit saved. And in other words, Paul believes that putting this person out of the church is for this person's good. It's a step towards this person's salvation. It's not a, a punishment executed against him. 
It is a judgment made about where he is with God that is communicated to him for his own good. It is a judgment. It is not a punishment. So here's, here's what you need to know about what Paul's commanding here. When churches take this action in obedience to what Paul says and remove someone from the church, it's not about control. It's about clear communication. What I mean is that every person is, of course, free to do whatever they want. I mean, inside the law, the church in Corinth can't stop this guy from sleeping with his stepmother if that's what he wants to do. They can't control him. It's not their role to do that. But they can, and not only can, they must communicate to him that what he's doing doesn't square with faith in Jesus. Removing him from the church is is meant to be a wake-up call for him. It's meant to say, hey, your flesh is ruling you. Your heart allies with Satan and his kingdom. You will get what he is going to get as long as you ally with him. Put it to death. Come under Christ instead. We, this action is meant to say to the person, we want you to know you're out there with him, whatever you may think about yourself. You're, you're right now, you're on his side and we want you in here with us. So we're gonna put you out there so that Lord willing, you will come back in here, but on his terms, not yours. And if the church doesn't communicate that message to this man, what's he gonna believe? He's gonna believe Jesus is fine with what he's doing. Nobody's saying anything different, must be good. Can you see it now, friends? Doing nothing in this situation is not loving. It, it might seem like that on the surface. You know, you might think, hey, these are consenting adults. Nobody's getting hurt here. If this is making them happy, then, then by all means, just live and let live. Who am I to stand in their way? Why would I? And in a way, that sounds so broad-minded and affirming. But whether it is depends completely on whether God exists, on whether or not God has spoken to what he wants for our sexuality, on whether or not there's a day coming when we will give an account to him for what we've done with these lives that he's given us. And Christians like Paul, they believe that God does exist, that God does care what we do with our bodies, that 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 day of reckoning is coming and we will all face it. And Paul wants to see this man saved on that day. He wants him to survive that day. And so he says, deliver this man to Satan so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's first motivation for doing what Paul commands is love for the sinner. Then in verse six, Paul says, do this thing because you love the church. Not just because you love the sinner, that's layer number one to this love that drives this action. Layer number two would be love for the church. Look at verse six. Paul says, your boasting, talking to this church, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, 
He's using a metaphor from Israel's Passover celebration here. And part of that celebration, every year, they were supposed to take all the leaven from their homes. And for that week of celebration, they were to bake only unleavened bread. It was a symbol God had given them for the purity of God's people, a purity he wanted for them, a purity he redeemed them from Egypt in order to cultivate in them in the land that he was going to give them. It was a sign, in other words, that this people belonged wholly to him and not to the gods of Israel's neighbors. And in this celebration, any bit of leaven, even the smallest bit, would compromise the whole lump of dough. It would spread its effects through the whole thing. Maybe you're not a baker. Maybe the metaphor isn't quite relatable enough to you. Here's another one I came across that that might work a little better. How many drops of urine are you comfortable adding to your bottle of water? A little bit spreads through the hole, doesn't it? That's what Paul means. He's saying sin in a church is kind of like that. It's not guilt by association. It's that our attitudes and our affections and our behavior, they will always be shaped by the people we identify with. That sin that's allowed to thrive without anyone saying anything about it is going to spread to others around it. Our youngest son started kindergarten this year having a blast at a great school. We've been so pleased by it so far. But one of the interesting things about sending a kid off to kindergarten is that they bring back very interesting patterns of speech that they didn't have before they started spending all day every day with a bunch of kids they didn't know before. And you know, in kindergarten, it's super endearing and very tame, Thanks, thank, thank God. But it's also really interesting how different the terms are and even sometimes the sentence structures are. Where where did you hear that? We've never heard that before. He's He's just learning from the people that he's around. It's natural. It's human to do that. It's one reason last week Paul said, imitate me as I try to imitate Jesus. But if a church lets sin go on unchecked, well, that's going to get imitated too. That's going to spread. It strikes me that that in chapter 5, Paul only mentions the man's sexual immorality once. He only talks about that specific sin the one time at the very beginning. You know what he calls out more often than that? Did you notice it? This church is pride. You're arrogant. Aren't you not rather to mourn? Your boasting is not good. He's been calling out pride all letter so far. Every chapter he goes back to that. I think it's the pride that's ultimately been their downfall. It was, it was letting pride linger. It was feeding pride that then when this sexual immorality pops up, let that linger too. He doesn't tell us exactly why pride is so on his mind when he's thinking about this man's sin, but it's not difficult to imagine. Maybe, maybe they, they celebrated this sin in an attempt to seem more mature than all the closed-minded sticklers who don't get it, who haven't become enlightened. Or maybe they're tolerating this sin because of who it was that was doing it. I mean, we know that this church was obsessed with status. We know they were trying to climb all the right ladders in all the right ways. This is a church that would struggle if a particularly powerful or wealthy member were guilty of doing something that Jesus said not to do. It would have been tough for this church to call that person out rather than try to stay on their good side and climb up behind them. 
One way or another, we know that Paul's concern all along has been that they're too focused on themselves and what they want out of life and not enough on Christ and who he is to them. They've allowed this sin to linger. And look at how it's already spreading. And so Paul is saying, if you love the church, put this sin out. Friends, one way to see a healthy church One way to understand its purpose is as a kind of support system for fighting sin and and fighting for the holiness that honors God and is good for us. I think war is the right image for it. It's the image the Bible uses for it. That's, That's what spiritual growth can feel like a lot of the time. And to fight well, a battle that we are outmatched in, if all we've got is our own strength, to fight well, what we need is a community of friends who are all on the same page about the threat and who are all humble enough to know they can't fight by themselves and who are all eager to to help each other put off that old self and put on that new self day after day and week after week and year after year from now till glory. And if that's a big part of what a local church is, a support system for fighting against sin and for the holiness that honors God and serves us, if that's our job, There are few things that have more power to undermine our mission than a blind eye towards sin. If we love the church, we'll do what Paul commands. And there's one more layer, a third layer to this love that should drive us to take sin seriously. Paul calls our attention next to love for Christ. This is in verse 7. Look with me at what he says. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. It's another way of repeating the same command. And then he says, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let me translate that for you. He's right back in Passover. Now he's shifting from the unleavened bread part of Passover, which was a symbol of purity, to the sacrificed lamb part of Passover, which was a symbol of God's intent to forgive Israel of its sin by grace through the death of a sacrifice. He's saying, you already are unleavened, pure, redeemed and set free from sin. That's who you are because Christ was sacrificed for you. During the Passover in Egypt, because of Egypt's refusal to set Israel free, God promised he was gonna take the life of every firstborn son in the whole land. That would apply even to Israel unless they took the way of escape that he made available to them. If they were to sacrifice a lamb, pure and spotless, and take that blood and wipe it over the door of their homes and then shelter inside that home underneath that blood, then when the judgment came to their house, it would pass over them. Not because they deserve better than what Egypt got. They were sinful too. But because they trusted the sacrifice that made them free from that burden. 
inside that house, protected by that blood, God's people were safe. And now Paul is saying, that's what a church is too. A church is, a, is God's house, a people protected by the blood of God's chosen sacrifice, God's firstborn son who died willingly to free his people from sin. You're unleavened, you're pure now because Jesus sacrificed himself for you. It cost him his life to set you free. It cost him his blood to wash you clean. And he gave it up willingly by grace. So now what? That's who you are. Now what? Well, I guess sin's taken care of. May as well not worry about that anymore. Let's just live and let live. Thanks be to God, I don't have to worry about what I do anymore. Jesus has taken care of all that. I'm free now. I'll just do what I want. Right? No, 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 no. Not if you see the beauty and the power of his sacrifice for you. Not, not when you look at how serious sin must be if this was the price that had to be paid to overcome it. When you see that, you want to honor his sacrifice. You'll want to lean into the purity that he died to make possible for you. You'll want to, as, as he puts it in verse 8, celebrate the festival. Live your life as a celebration of this redemption. My dad's dad was an amazing man. He was born in 1921, lived through the Depression, lived through the war, pastored churches for like 50 years. One of the funniest people I ever knew. I wish you could have, I wish you could have known him. He was also one of the best storytellers that I ever knew. I wish I'd recorded them. I wish I had a, like a, a bank of audio recordings of the stories he, I grew up him telling us. I, I don't remember most of them, but there is one I'll never forget. It's a story when he was a little kid. Uh, the depression was just beginning. Early in the depression, uh, when he was around middle school age, his father died of tuberculosis. And he had lots of siblings. So now throughout most of the 30s, his mother had to do everything she could do to, to provide for their family through one of the worst economic crises in the history of our country. And she did. She was incredible. They had barely any income for most of that decade and they were lean times and it cost her a lot to provide for them. But there was this one time that she had scrounged up enough pennies to send him down to the drugstore to get an ice cream cone. I mean, him telling this story, you could tell he was right back there in his mind, what that meant. That was, that was a big deal at any time. I'd love to do that this afternoon. I mean, that'd be, that sounds great. It's always good to go get an ice cream cone. But back then in the middle of the depression, in that family, it was monumental. It was a sacrifice to make that possible. An incredible expression of love from his mother to him. Well, when he was walking home along the sidewalk, you know what happened? It hurts me even to tell you this. He's walking along, eating his ice cream cone, and it falls right off onto the ground. Hits that Jacksonville pavement and melts away. Now, the reason he was right back there in his mind and heart is that he told this story as a tragedy. <laughs> like, that was a big moment for him. And it hurt. It still hurt even then to think back on it. And it hurt him then because he knew what it had cost his mom to make that possible for him. And he also really wanted that ice cream. <laughs> but, but, but imagine hypothetically if he had thrown down that ice cream on purpose. 
If he'd just been real casual with it, kind of lackadaisical, looking around, playing elbow and roughhousing with his brothers, and then it fell, and he was just like, oh, whatever. Easy come, easy go. Didn't cost me anything. There'll be another one where that came from. What would you say that he felt towards his mother? If that's how he reacted when his ice cream fell on the ground. I would say, well, there's a kid who just doesn't love his mom very much. There's a kid who has no idea what it cost his mom to give him that. There's a kid who just, she just doesn't matter to him as much as she should. Now, if you believe what the Bible has told us about the essence of the gospel, that this good news is sinners like us, despite ourselves, set free from sin by the sacrifice of the only Son of God who willingly came and lived and died for us. And if you take that as the measure of his love for you, then you will look at what it cost him to save you. And you will see how serious sin is. You will see how devastating its penalty and power really is. And you will look at him willingly paying that cost for you. You will look at him. And you will be absolutely unable to shrug your shoulders at the sin that caused his pain. How could you? How could you go on sinning as if you're not heaping your burden on his shoulders? Because that's what it is. Here's how one medieval writer put it, Bernard of Clairvaux. If he, talking about Jesus, suffers anything to be done against himself rather than do anything against you, how great is your wickedness in not sparing him who does not spare himself in sparing you. If we love Christ, we'll take sin seriously because he did. Or as Paul puts it in verse 8, we will celebrate the festival. Our whole life will be given as a celebration feast for what he did for us at the Passover. It really comes down to this. Live as if what he did for you matters to you. If you love Christ, you'll take sin seriously and make no peace with it. And that's the most important, the most foundational motivation for taking sin seriously in our church. We love him. Look at what he gave to redeem us from this sin. How could we, how could we shrug it off? We can't. And we won't. The jarring command is put this person out of the church. The unexpected motivation is because love demands it. This is love. Love for him, love for the church, and love for Christ. So here's where I want to leave you. We already covered the basics of this text. But I want to leave you with one more thing you need to understand because it shapes how you see your church if you're a member here. You need to see number three, the target audience of this text. Not just the jarring command, not just the unexpected motivation, but the target audience. It's you. We've seen what needs to happen. We've seen why it needs to happen, but you need to notice who it is that must do this thing. This is a command for the local church. In other words, all of us. Look back at verses three and four with me. 
Paul says, I'm absent in body, but present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. You. Now think about that. Paul is an apostle. There weren't very many of them. He was one. No one has ever had more authority in the life of a church than Paul. And Paul knows exactly what needs to happen here. He's already come to his own judgment on the issue, he tells us. But his judgment on what needs to happen isn't enough. He tells the church that it's their job to make judgment on this. He can't do it for them. When you come together, he says, in other words, when you gather just like this in the name of the Lord with his authority at work in you as a church, that's when you deliver this man to Satan. You have to do it. I can't do it for you. You're the one Jesus made responsible for this. And, and by that you is you guys, not me as one of your pastors, not, not your elders as a group, not even your apostle, not even Paul can do this work. It's the church. And that's why I think when you zoom it out a little bit further, Paul's mostly concerned not about the sin that this man is committing, but at the way the church is responding to it. And most of the chapter is about them. It's about what they aren't doing and what they should do. He mentions the guy's sin. That's the starting point. That's context. But, it, but he's really concerned about them. As one writer put it, the man's sin was a single serious infection. The church's lack of discipline was a complete failure of the immune system. You are our immune system. A church that doesn't understand that this kind of action is part of their responsibility for representing God's kingdom on earth is a struggle that's, is a church that's always going to struggle to stay healthy. We just will. So, so my desire for you in walking away from this difficult chapter is to know that if you're a member of our church, it is your responsibility to help us take sin seriously. You are part of the immune system. I think that, that what that means for us is really clear. It means that you got to invite your friends to speak truth into your life. It starts with you saying, if you see something in me, don't wait till you got the courage up to tell me what you see. Just go ahead and get it out of the way. Just tell me before it gets too late. Invite this kind of care early on. Make it easy on your friends to love you like this. And on the other end of it, give this care early on. I mean, in the covenant that we make as members of our church, we promise that we're going to live together in Christian love. This is a line in the covenant. What does it mean to live together in Christian love? We will exercise watchfulness over each other and encourage each other to forsake sin and pursue holiness. That's a promise you made. To love others by watching over them and encouraging them. Being a church member, in other words, means knowing it's not somebody else's job to have the difficult conversation. You might be the best position to do it. If you're the first to notice when something concerning is taking shape, when there's a pattern of what looks like sin without repentance, it is almost certain that you're the right person to talk to that friend about what you see. By all means, the Lord has given you elders to help you know how to do that well. But our church won't ever be healthy enough if when you see a problem, 
you believe it's someone else's job to address it. Almost always it's going to be more effective for you to just go for it. And bringing others in right away, sometimes it'll just raise the stakes too high, too quick, cause more pain and more confusion. How much better for that friend to hear something concerning from somebody they know well, from someone they know loves them and has been paying attention with much grace into their life. Friends, we have to be ready to give each other that kind of day in, day out preventive care. And then we have to be ready to follow through all the way to the end when we have to. If we don't stand against sin in this way, why wouldn't we? It wouldn't be because we love the sinner too much to call it out. Any more than it makes sense for me to say I love my kids too much to stop them from playing in the middle of Shelby Avenue. It won't be because we love the church and we really want to keep us chill and laid back. And it won't be because we love Christ and want to celebrate his grace. If we don't love each other in this way, it'll be because we love ourselves most of all. And we know this work is not fun to do. It hurts. It's messy. It's tragic and heartbreaking. Let's pray that the Lord will make us a community of love, not first and foremost for ourselves, but a love that is modeled on his. Truth-telling, self-sacrificing, gracious and merciful love for sinners. We pray that with me now. Father, we ask for your help to obey you in a difficult work that you've given us to do. We pray that you'd protect us from our blindness, protect us from our clumsiness, protect us from all the limits that could make this work more difficult to do than it already is, and give us the courage to obey you and to love each other well by taking sin seriously. We ask you to do this ultimately for your name's sake. You are worthy of a church that honors you. We pray that you would make us into that church in Jesus' name. Amen.